of February. We are up to chapter 7, verses 5 through 16. Before I read this text, I need to put it in a little bit of context just to remind you about what's going on. Paul is talking in uh, this text uh, about his broken relationship uh, with the church at Corinth. And uh, what he is getting at here is he speaks in this passage about another letter that he had written to the Corinthians where he addresses their sin against him. Remember, there are people in the church who said he was a fraud, that he was stealing, that he was taking advantage of people, that his gospel was false. And so he writes them a very direct and challenging letter, and he is speaking in this text about the effect of that letter and the report that his friend Titus, who took the letter and then came back with news of response to the letter, what he has to say about that. And so uh, we're going to read this whole passage, 2 Corinthians 7, 5 through 16. Uh, it's printed in the bulletin and also up on the screens behind me. Uh, this is God's word, and we should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter that, that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we're comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. So what we're getting at here in this text is Paul has written a very uh, direct and challenging letter uh, to the church in Corinth because of the broken relationship that he has with them. And then he ends this text, which I think is, is pretty profound, because he, apparently when he sent Titus, he said, I'm sending this letter. It's a very hard hitting, a very direct letter. But I believe the Corinthians will hear it and repent. That's what he means when he says, for whatever boasts I made to him that I made to Titus about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, that is, he rebuked them, they needed to repent, so also our boasting before Titus 
has proved true. They did repent. And so that's where we, we need to see this. So in case you haven't figured it out yet, we're going to talk today about repentance and rebuke. Okay? That's what we're going to talk about. Um, and... Um, And honestly, uh, I hope we go through exactly what we see here, and that is confusion, sorrow, grace, and joy. Um, because that's the that's that's the that's well that's where this text ends up, and that's where true repentance always, always, always leads us. So while I was thinking about this text this week, I was reading in the sports page um, that uh, former football coach at Virginia Tech, Frank Beamer, uh, has, uh, is being nominated for the College Football Hall of Fame. Now, for some of you, that's great news. For some of you, that's terrible news. Um, and uh, and so it made me think about halls of fame, that we have halls of fame in America. We have the Coopers, in Cooperstown, New York, we have the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame. There's gloves and bats and those kinds of things. Uh, in uh, Canton, Ohio, we have the National Football League Hall of Fame, where they have helmets and footballs and jerseys and that sort of thing. In Springfield, Massachusetts, we have the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. So I was thinking about all these halls of fame, and I thought about, you know, I have a hall of fame. The hall of fame of rebukes that I have received in my life. Uh, I'm going to mention three, the top three in the hall of fame. When you walk in the door, these are the first three that you see. Um, actually, I'm going to give you four. I just thought of another one. <laughs> Um, the uh, first one is, uh, between my, um, junior and senior years in college in the summer, I didn't have a job because of, as my mother so aptly would say to me, your trifling laziness has led you to not have a job. Trifling laziness is a big phrase in the South. I don't know if your mom's ever used that. My mom used it a lot. Trifling laziness. And it's not trifling laziness as a thing. It's your trifling laziness. She was right. And so it just, I was just felt really terrible about it. And my dad came to me and he said, have you even prayed about getting a job? That's rebuke number one. Rebuke number two was walking outside of a uh, building at my seminary campus when I was a first-year seminary student. And my favorite professor looked at me and said, if you don't change, you're going to be a miserable failure in ministry. <laughs> That's rebuke number two. Rebuke number three happened just a few minutes after rebuke number two when my wife said to me, am I going to have to move every time you get discouraged? <laughs> and then rebuke number four was just a few months ago when I had taken my daughter out to a great lunch, brunch really after church, and we were having a great time, and she looked at me and said, Dad, is your phone your pacifier?
those are the top four. When you come to the Steve Shelby Hall of Fame of Rebukes, those are the first four that you meet when you, when you come in the door. Um, my dad was right. I hadn't prayed because it was a period of faithlessness in my life. My professor was right. I needed to change. Marty was right that I needed to learn that Jesus perseveres and that he would give me the gift of perseverance. And Madeline was right. I was too tied to my phone. And so I dropped all my social media. And in all four of those cases, just like in this case where Paul writes to the church in Corinth, I knew that the person who rebuked me loved me. I knew that the person who rebuked me wanted me to change and wanted me to repent, not just because it would make their life easier or better or even because I had hurt them, but for the sake of the work of God in my life. And so what what we're going to do today is look at this this. This issue of repentance and rebuke that that happens here between Paul and these people in Corinth that he loved. These people in Corinth that that were so dear to him. And remember what had happened was because he had missed a visit with them, uh, people were beginning to say that he was a, he was a fraudulent, that he only uh, ministered to take advantage of them and that that his gospel was false. And Paul is undone. By the brokenness in this relationship, he is grieved. He is deeply grieved, uh, not just for the fact that he's been hurt and not just for the fact that the relationship has been broken. Certainly those things are true, but he's also grieved and hurt because he recognizes that this is robbing the church of the glory of God, a, a clear vision of the glory of God. And it is robbing the church of the joy of sins forgiven. And and he wants to see them and him restored to what it is that God has intended for them. And so he takes this chance, he takes the risk to love them enough to rebuke them, to write to them a letter. And so let's look at let's let's look at what happens here, right? So so he says that he addresses here his broken relationship with the Corinthians and how God, through his gift of repentance in the Corinthians, had changed the dynamic of their relationship. And that is the place where this this ends up is with this sense of re- renewal and restored uh, joy in in their relationship. So the Corinthians had tears not just in longing for Paul, but over the brokenness of their relationship. Because they, Paul brought them to a point by rebuking them to see the grief and the difficulty and, and, and the, just the horrible thing that had happened as a result of their sin uh, uh, against them. And so he tells them that he knows that the letter that he wrote them caused grief. Now, a couple of things that we're going to unpack about this to get at the dynamics of rebuke and repentance. We're going to we're going to we're going to we're going to begin to work at that. But let me let me just say something at the very outset about this that I didn't say at the nine o'clock service, which wrecked that one. So I'm not going to wreck this one. And this then that's this. One of the things that you have to see about this and the kind of the subtext that is going on in this text is the absolute necessity 
of our need, not just of the gospel. We need the gospel. Not just the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. Because without the Holy Spirit of God, no one will ever repent. But what we might miss in this is the fact that we need each other. That this is a particular gift of being in community with one another, that this is a particular gift of being in relationship with one another, and that it is a precious thing that God gives the church and that God gives his people to be together and to love one another, to bear each other's burdens, to be long-suffering with one another, and yes, even to love enough to humbly, with fear and trembling, cause pain to the loved one because we love them and we want to see them restored. So, so we need to unpack about how this works. And, and, and honestly, you know, we could spend, uh, weeks on this whole topic. We only have one week today to talk about this. So, uh, I'm not going to address every single counseling sort of issue about every single relationship and how somebody repents or doesn't repent or whatever. But there are some things that we're going to draw out of this text today that are true in every case where we rebuke sin and where we experience the joy of repentance together. So the first one is the one that you might miss, the importance of time in this. Notice what Paul says here in verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. See the humility there, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. Now, though one of the things that you have to see about this and what makes repentance when we deal with one another and we deal with one another in the context of rebuke so difficult is it takes time. It would be great if I could simply go to you and say to you, listen, you sinned. It caused this effect. You need to repent and you instantly repented. Right. The the fact of the matter is it doesn't work like that. In fact, often what happens is it takes time. It it takes and and it takes a few. uh, 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 Who knows? It may take days. It may take weeks before the reality of that really begins to set in on us. And so so Paul writes the letter and he's and he has the humility to say, oh, I don't want to cause you pain. I'm I'm I might even regret the, the, the that I wrote this, but I love you enough to take the the risk to write you this letter to address it. And that I know that the pain might even last for a while. So what we have to be willing to do with one another when we deal with one another is we have to be willing to tell each other the truth in love, taking the the log out of our own eye before we go to take the speck out of our brother's eye. But in humility, be willing to know and to trust that the gift of repentance is a gift, that it belongs to God. And that we pray and that we long and that we yearn that God would use our feeble effort at rebuke to bring about the this marvelous, wonderful, joyful occasion in the life of someone we love. We cause them pain, but God in his goodness causes them to repent. But it might take some time. It might take some time. In fact, in fact, often what in my own experience uh, what I have found is there are plenty of times where I have challenged people and rebuked people and thought that when I did it, I wrecked our relationship forever. 
because of their anger, because of their disappointment, because they stormed out of my office or stormed out of my house, only to see in a matter of days or weeks, they came back and said, you were right. That's hard. It's really hard to wait. It's really hard to trust. But Paul recognizes that it may take, uh, that it, that it happened for a time. So he says here that, that he knew that, that, that he had caused them grief and the grief that he brought the Corinthians only worked them good because it brought about their repentance. They were grieved according to God. That is to say their grief was worked by God and rested in his hand. It has its time where they experience grief, where they see the ugliness and the, the horrible uh, effect of their sin on, on themselves, on Paul, and ultimately on uh, their relationship with God. Their grief was worked by God and it rested in his hand. It has its time, but that time had come to an end in their change of heart. So he recognized and, and they recognized the odiousness, the ugliness, the, the horrible nature of what they had done by allowing people to lead them astray, to, by allowing people to gossip and slander Paul, by allowing this, his gospel to be, be uh, identified as a lie and that this relationship was broken. Paul loved them enough to rebuke them, to cause them pain and to cause them grief so that that God's spirit might operate upon them and reorient them and change them, right? Um, it's a, it's a, it's, 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 and so what you have to expect about that is, and what makes repentance and rebuke so uneven is, the fact is that um, it takes time. And in fact, I would submit to you that if someone repent, repents very quickly, Almost immediately, sometimes God works that way, but in my experience, it takes longer. And, and at least to give some time to pass to test that, uh, test that, re- that repentance. The healing God works through wounding is complete and whole. God wills to restore us, not destroy us, even though he must perform the latter in order to accomplish the former, Right? So it may seem to us that when we get rebuked in our sin, it may seem to us that this is a horribly terrible thing that happens to us, that, that it, it may seem to us that something that is, is, uh, that we are exposed or, or, or we just don't want to, to, to come to grips with this. Or it may be, and I think this is the thing for most of us, that when we are rebuked, when our sin is identified, it's probably not the first time you've ever had to repent of that sin. And it is something that goes on and on and on. The, the quotation from Brooks at the beginning of the, of the bulletin where we say that repentance is something that goes on daily, something that goes on moment by moment. Uh, the, the, the fact of the matter is, uh, honestly, it is such a profound part of the work of God. It is such a profound part of the nature of the gospel where we sin. That sin is exposed. We have our eyes open to see it for what it is. We see the great mercy in Jesus Christ in atoning for that sin. And we see that, and when, when we see that, it moves us to hate that sin. And as a result of that, moves us toward one another 
in relationship. So, so it is, it is something, w- w- when you see this, when you recognize the, the, uh, the, the fact that God might actually cause us pain, that he might actually put us in a situation where our sin is exposed, it is all out of a heart of mercy. It is all out of a heart of grace. When Paul rebukes the Corinthians, he does it because he wants them to be restored. He doesn't do it because he's mad at them. He doesn't do it because he wants to hurt them. He doesn't do it because he wants to punish them. He does it because he loves them enough to recognize that he must address that sin. And that, 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 that their lives, that their walk with Christ, that their, uh, the way they are living, they're not experiencing the fullness of joy that Jesus died to give them. And so he's willing and ready to rebuke them. If you're rebuking people simply because they made you mad or simply because they hurt you or offended you and you don't have in mind the reality that what God intends in this rebuke is restoration, joy, repentance, then perhaps the reason why your rebukes aren't working is they are simply about you and not about the greater purpose that God may have for somebody's life. Now, let me just say a couple of things right here uh, before we go any further. So this is hard, um, and it raises all sorts of questions, um, because what do we do with people who we rebuke and they repent? They seem to repent. They, maybe they really do repent, and then they do it again, right? You know anybody like that? No one, know any situations like that? Well, Paul, Paul gets to that a, a, a bit here, but, but the fact of the matter is, uh, what we have to see in this is, is that that is why God places us in community, and that's why He places us together, so that we can help each other and love each other enough in those situations to be challenged in our rebukes, to be challenged by uh, the humility that the gospel gives us, but also to challenge one another to repent and to change for the glory of God and the, and the profound joy that we experience when this happens. So, so how does Paul know that they repented? Well, he cites earnestness, eagerness to clear yourselves, indignation, fear, longing, zeal, punishment. So, so when you read that, you think, wow, that's a, there's a, you know, there's a, there's this sense in which it, within the community there, there was this kind of foment and this kind of uh, big emotional response in that. And what you would think when you first read this is, is that you might be tempted to think, well, no, they, you know, they hear their sin. God in his grace reveals it to them. They see it for what it is. And, and so their repentance now is all about, uh, this kind of, this kind of strong, uh, uh emotional reaction. If you look deeper into the context here, the way Paul understood that they had repented, and he uses these language, this language is, next slide please, AJ, is this, because they're intent now on accepting Paul, they're now defending him. So when it says that, uh, uh, that they're punishing, what happened, as we'll see as we read further into the letter, uh, that they actually were so moved and so intent on being restored to Paul that they actually overstepped their bounds in dealing with the people that had led them astray to begin with. And so they're 
their uh, desire, their earnestness to clear their name, the indignation and all of that wasn't about themselves. Wasn't to to say, look, you know, look at us. You know, I'm going to act this way so that you see that I've repented. Their repentance was demonstrated in the fact that they suddenly now have gone out of their way to make it sure to make it clear that Paul is their man and that they are defending him and that they are for him and that they love him. Right. So that's 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 it has to do with how they're now dealing with the offenders in their midst. So um, he will rebuke them in chapter nine to say, you know, you need to tone it down a little bit with the the, the people uh, um that uh, that that have offended you. So as a result of their repentance, Paul now overlooks the guilt of the Corinthians. Can you believe that? I mean, look at what he says. I think this is this is is, is such a profound um, thing. I okay. Where is it? Where is it? Where he says that they're innocent? He holds them innocent. Where did I see that? It's in here. What verse is that? Ah. Yeah, verse 11, right? He says, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So this is what's even more remarkable about it is, is that he is willing now to forget about it, to treat them because of their repentance is so complete as if what they did before never happened, that he holds them innocent. That what he recognizes there is that in the gospel, that the, the atoning work of Jesus Christ is so big and so powerful and so profound that it actually covers their sin against him. That it's been paid for and that as he has said a couple of chapters earlier, he made him to be sin. Jesus Christ, when he was nailed to that board, the, the sin of the Corinthians here was one of the things that nailed him to that board. That sin was paid for right there. It was atoned for right there. And as a result of that, they are now the righteousness of God. And this is hard. This is so hard because it puts us in a situation. And Paul doesn't speak to us now about what level of trust he has with the church or or any of those sorts of things. He's just very clear that this episode, this thing that happens is done. It's as if it did not happen. He says they're innocent. And so he's not got his little book out. He doesn't have his little piece of paper that he pulls out of his pocket and says, here's the list of the terrible things you've done in the last six months. I know, I I know you said, I said I forgave you, but let me just remind you about what you did. This is hard. There's no doubt about it. This is challenging stuff, right? Um, because the fact is, if you're in a relationship, it, it's, it's so funny. My, my son, who's a newlywed, said to me, he, he said this to me twice now, and with this kind of glassy-eyed look as he's staring off into space, where he says, you know all those platitudes about how marriage reveal your selfishness? They're true, aren't they? <laughs> you know, God bless them and their marriage. You know, they're going to have to repent of their selfishness every day for the rest of their lives. 
It is going to be something that, and, and you know in your own marriage that, that that is something, that is the, one of the great gifts that you have in that is that, 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 that God does that to you, causes you that pain, but also gives you that joy as you repent of it. But we rob joy of repentance when we don't allow the person to actually repent. Because what we, when we say to them, I know you're repenting this time, but I'll remember. I'm going to hold that against you. It's hard. It is hard. It's challenging. Um, but what Paul says here is because they've repented, he's not going to bring it up again. He's not going to hold it against them. It's as if not just that he's forgiven them, but he says they're innocent. It's like it didn't even happen. And then he tells us in this text about the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And I think the, the best way for us to understand this is, is the difference between hope and hopelessness. Because here's the thing. In, if, if you, if, if, if you recognize, and I think whether you're a believer or not, whether, whether you're, uh, what, wh- whatever you are today, I think every one of us can agree on this one thing. And that is that the world is a broken place. And that as a result of that, uh, we uh, often uh, hurt one another and offend one another in our relationships, that it is something that we do. Now, if the only resource you have to address your hurt and to address your brokenness is yourself and your own wit and wisdom, there's no, it, it's no wonder you're hopeless. But if your hope in the midst of rebuking someone, in the midst of repenting, and in the midst of dealing with, with broken relationships is the reality that this sin has been atoned for, that Jesus Christ is at work, and that our God raises the dead, then there's every reason to hope that, that we look at the system that's broken and that's messed up, but what we see is that God has intervened, has come from outside the system to change this dynamic, to reorient us, to, to atone for sin, and to make it such that we can deal openly and honestly with one another. You see, uh, as, as, um, uh, as Jack Miller used to say, if, if, if your problem is that you're a lemon, that you're just simply broken, then lemons have to be taken to the, 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 um, um, and Bishop Lemon is when you buy a car and it's no good. And it, it's always, I just, thanks for being here. That reminds me, you, you're probably wondering what I'm talking about. Uh, you're not a lemon, no. Although we are, we can be pretty sour, can't we? <laughs> anyway, um, all you can do with a car that is a lemon is take it to the junkyard. Can't be fixed. Can't be fixed. But if you're a sinner, you have a savior. You have someone who died for you. And better than that, he rose from the dead. Our God raises the dead. And if our God raises the dead, I have every reason to hope when I rebuke and when I repent that this will end in salvation and joy. So it's no wonder that if all we have is regret 
and all we have is sadness. It's no wonder that it ends in death. But what the wonder of real repentance is, I see the bloody sacrifice on my behalf and I see the empty tomb. And therefore, I can look at any broken relationship and I can hope that God will work, that he'll change me, that he'll change you, that he'll restore us for joy. Next slide. So some practical considerations uh, for us, whether you're the one rebuked or the one doing the rebuking. First of all, the goal. The goal of your rebuke and the goal of repenting is salvation. That's the goal. It's not to set one another straight. It's not simply to correct one another or redirect one another. The goal in this is something that is actually out of our control. Because what I want to happen in you and what I want to happen in me, only God can do. But praise God, he loves the joy of center of sinners repenting and restored. He throws parties in heaven every time that happens. So if your goal is simply to straighten someone out, it's no wonder that there's never real repentance or real rebuke in your life. Next, humility. It takes humility to truly rebuke someone for their good and their glory or the the glory of God to be shown in their lives. And it takes real humility to be willing to take that risk. It takes humility to own the sin. It takes humility to say you're right. Now, one of the things that I think is profound about this, and this is real, this is to me, this is the hardest thing about this. I am certain that the Corinthians did not think they were sinning. They didn't think they were sinning in the way they were treating Paul. They, they, they probably thought they were doing God's work. They probably thought they were doing the right thing, even though it was evil and wicked. But they probably thought they were just fine. And so that's what makes their repentance even more dynamic because they had to move from being kind of mindless about what they were doing to the place of owning it, repenting, grieving it, and then turning in joy. And that's what makes this so hard. Because for many of us, One of the reasons why we haven't repented in a long time is because, frankly, we kind of sleepwalk through our lives. In North Carolina, we have a thing where uh, when um, I've even heard my dad say this before, that uh, the preacher quit preaching and he went to meddling. Allow me to meddle for a minute. Please. And I I honestly, before God, what I'm about to say to you, I say in all humility. If I were to say to you, you need to repent of your racism, none of you would repent because you don't think you're a racist. And I can't think of anything probably any harder in our culture today, to own than that. However, if I were to say to you, 
Who do you disregard? Who do you view with suspicion simply because of their skin color? Who do you view as someone that you could never have a relationship with because they're too old or they don't vote the way you vote, even though they sit with you every Sunday in church? But I am compelled to say this as well. Back in the winter, we sang a number of Sundays a song about refugees. It's a great song, and I hope we keep singing it. But there's a problem. Some of you heard that song as sticking it to the present administration. And some of you heard it as a political statement moving in the opposite direction. I don't think the sin here, and I believe there's sin, I believe there's confusion, and I believe there's other things, but what I really believe happened here Our sin was in not seeing each other. I think. And so as I, as I tell you that this morning, I am, if it makes you mad that I said this, then I think we're on the way to repentance. If I made you sad with what I said this morning, then I think we're on the way to repentance. I confess to my own confusion about this, but I know that our God is not pleased when we would divide so radically over something about his grace welcoming all of us who by our sin are refugees. We can never lose sight of the fact that there's a God behind all of this and that it is his joy to give us repentance And to see us restored. And lastly. The great thing. About what Paul does here is. He is comforted. And he has joy. Because he took the risk. To challenge what was broken. And to see the spirit of God. At work in people. Sometimes I wonder. Is there a God? Honestly, I wonder that sometimes. But when I see people repent, I know there's a God. When I see people on their sin and humbly, joyfully accept the atoning work of Christ and be renewed in that, I know there's a God.
For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're going to use the first 12 verses of Psalm 51 uh, to confess our sins. This is a great uh, prayer of confession written by King David after confronted uh, by his own pride and adultery, uh, lying and murder. Pray with me. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Believer, hear these words of encouragement. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The scriptures tell us that when we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes by proclaiming the Lord's death, we are recognizing the reality that we need a savior and that we need a savior because our sin is so great. It required the death of the son of God to atone for our sin. 
But not only that, we proclaim the Lord's death in a voice of triumph and joy because Jesus Christ has overcome. His death and his resurrection have broken the power of sin over me and has set me free so that I can say, Lord, even I, a sinner, a sinful man, a man with sinful lips who lives among a people with sinful lips can be renewed, restored, and forgiven in joy. The end of history is the gathering of all of God's people at his table, experiencing the fullness of joy of sins atoned for and of the reality that in that place and in that time, the grace of repentance will no longer be needed. If you've come to that place in your spiritual life where you know you have no other hope Uh, No other trust, no other place to turn except to the work of Jesus Christ for you. You've proclaimed that to a body of believers somewhere. He urges you today to come and be renewed, to, to, to hear the rebuke against your sin and take with joy and gladness and humility this bread and this cup that demonstrates to you that Jesus Christ has atoned for you fully, full atonement. And if the full atonement has been made then you are free, you are free, free to repent. Free to take what Jesus has given you and free to enjoy the benefits, enjoy the restoration, enjoy the love and just the enjoyment of the work of God in your life and in the life of your brothers and sisters. Let me remind you today that the outer ring is wine, the inner rings are grape juice. Uh, The bread on, elders, you can come down and help me. The bread on this side of the stage is bread that is gluten-free, if you require that, as well as the bread on this side of the stage is gluten-free, if you require that. Thank <laughs> you.